You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet. Thanks for listening. We're going to talk about a lot of things today on the podcast, and we have a friend of the cast, Jamil Jaffer, who was the founder, actually, of the National Security Institute, which was a think tank, basically, at George Mason Law School here, Antonin Scalia School of Law. And he's done everything in the government. He's held all sorts of high-level legal jobs. And on top of that, he appears now to be like easing into the private sector in more ways than one with all sorts of venture capital exploits. How are you? Did you watch the game? great. I did watch the game. You know, I almost fell asleep three times in the first three quarters, but then <laughs> it got really good. And what an amazing finish. What a what a fun game that was. And uh, a lot of Taylor Swift, too. So, you know, a lot hey, of Taylor Swift. You know, you she go. contributed six billion dollars to the economy in uh, about 45 days. Well, but as it turns out, they said that it's all Donald Trump's doing, as he told us. He's done more <laughs> for Taylor far. Swift than Joe Biden ever has since she made her all her money. So, hey, who knew that that six billion dollars of the economy was all all because of Donald Trump. Well, in point to clarification, billion. It was six billion. Well, whoever did it, Taylor Swift, Donald Trump, it's appreciated by everyone. Well, anyway, I'm glad to talk to you because I don't know that we've had a busier national security law week. So I kind of wanted to start with the most obvious first place to start, which is the immunity question with Donald Trump. And let's be clear, I'm sure there are some people who just got out of a cave And they don't know that the D.C. Circuit has issued an opinion by three judges, correct me if I'm wrong, at least one of whom is a Republican and maybe two of whom are Republicans. Nominated by Republican presidents, right? That that doesn't necessarily mean they're Republican, as you know, but... Yes, yes, boy. Yeah, well, there are lots of Republicans like who live in D.C. who register as Democrats so they can vote in primaries and things so that doesn't mean anything. Uh, This opinion was very interesting, and I wanted you to talk about a couple of features of the opinions, but in particular, sort of the jurisdictional question. One, two, what they found, and sort of three, where you see this going with the Supreme Court, especially as we all sit here. We saw an interesting display from the Supreme Court we can talk about also with respect to the Colorado voting case, but let's start right with the immunity issue. Yeah, well, look, the, the bottom line of the D.C. Circuit's ruling is that President Trump no longer the president anymore. He doesn't have the benefit of presidential immunity. As a result, you know, he doesn't get to take the benefit of that. He is obviously going to seek review certiorari in the Supreme Court on this question. But I think the general consensus view is that the D.C. Circuit probably got it right. Remember, the acts that we're talking about here are acts that didn't take place while he was president. He said they did take place while he was president weren't official functions, right? Now, his, he's arguing that some of them were official functions and the like, right? But obviously, uh, what took place on January 6th, right? That's what we're talking about, right? That was political activity. It had to do with the, had to do with the presidency. It had to do with the election. It wasn't, it wasn't his job as president, per se. It was about what Congress was doing with respect to the election that took place for him to be reelected president. You know, obviously, this issue was, this is not the first time the question of some amount of immunity being raised uh, has been raised in this context. And it's been batted down by court after court. And so uh, I think that it is unlikely that he is going to get the benefit of presidential immunity in this context. Obviously, they could go en banc to the D.C. Circuit. They can go straight to the Supreme Court. Looks like they're going to go to the court and uh, we'll see what happens. But um, 
I would not be holding my breath for Donald Trump on this particular matter going forward. I think everyone always thought this was a, a low probability play for the president and his lawyers. Yeah, it sounds like those were sort of the odds here. Taking politics out of it, it just didn't seem the hypotheticals sort of revealed, I thought, you know, where the court was going. Like, could the president hire a team of Navy SEALs to kill a political opponent? Those kinds of questions, I think, were somewhat revealing. Let's move on for just a second, though. There have been some other interesting things regarding public officials, not the president. But there have been some revelations this week that, you know, we've had a it's been a bad almost five, six years now for generals. We watched former sort of iconic figure General Flynn sort of descend into some things that were you know, really questionable and end up in a lot of different trouble. But this week, there was some new information that came out about Mattis. Do you want to talk just briefly? This had a little bit to do with or a lot to do with his relationship with the UAE and what his professional obligations were as a government official regarding that relationship and whether or not he complied with that. Well, you know, as a general matter, senior government officials, uh, but in particular military officers, if they're going to work with or take money from foreign nation states, they have a significant number of requirements to comply with, some as a matter of law, some as a matter of statute, some as a matter of the Constitution, because obviously there is the, the emoluments clause. So the Department of Defense has certain procedures that you have to go through in order to comply with those requirements. Uh, they involve essentially, uh, if you want to work for a foreign nation state as a contractor or the like, you've got to fill out some forms, you've got to submit them to the Department of Defense, and you have to get approval from the uh, Department of Defense for engaging in those activities. There are restrictions as well on what you can and can't do. Uh, the Department of Defense can impose restrictions and the like. But the first order matters, you've got to go get those approvals. So then the question becomes, has General Mattis gotten those approvals? And at some level, right, it appears that Mattis did obtain the relevant approvals from the government, right? He he went to the Department of Defense, went to the State Department and got approvals. One, uh, just to address the emoluments clause issue, right? Are right. you receiving funding from a foreign government? Um, and then from the State Department, the question of, you know, export control, right? Like, are you are you exporting defense information, right? Because remember, mm. General Mattis has a lot of potentially classified information in his head. That obviously he can't disclose, but he also right. has potential technical information uh, that you can't export, right? Even, even through conversation. It's a deemed export if you transfer information to a, an outside third party. Now, all that being said, he got the approval. So he went through the process, got the approvals, and then moved out. Now, he didn't disclose it publicly, right? He didn't, he didn't talk about what he had done. And I think this is where it becomes a little challenging. It didn't come out during the confirmation process to become a Secretary of Defense, and it wasn't included. This and this is probably the most challenging one, right? You know, there's a question whether it had to be included, but it was included on his public financial disclosure form, right? That he filed with the Office of Government Ethics. He did report it to uh, on a confidential basis to the Senate Armed Services Committee. So then the question is: Are there certain things that you're allowed to disclose non-publicly and not disclose on your on your on your public form? It turns out that there are some circumstances. Whether Secretary Mattis's situation. Whether that applied in Secretary Madison's situation or not is unclear, but the allegation, right, in sort of the articles is, oh, here's Secretary Madison doing something illegally, not getting the right approvals. Turns out he got the right approvals. Turns out he did disclose it at some level, but perhaps not in the way that was required. Yeah. And one of the arguments back against that, you know, he wanted to disclose this. It wasn't a classified fact. So he disclosed it in confidence. 
But, you know, these approval hearings are often theater and the members did not raise this during the hearings. And it wasn't discussed publicly for consumption by constituents or concerned parties. And so there wasn't sort of a full airing of the issues that might have borne on Mattis's fitness, if you will, for service as an unbiased person. So it turns out, though, that that's not uncommon in the confirmation process. What I mean by that is, for example, there may be tax matters that are disclosed confidentially to a committee when they're considering right. nomination that are never discussed in a public hearing, that are discussed right. with the nominee and, and the committee and are never disclosed publicly and may bear on the public's view on whether that person should be, a, should be a nominee or not and confirmed and yet aren't disclosed because they're sensitive and they're confidential. And that happens all the time. And so it's not unusual. This, is, this may not be one of those, right? There's a debatable question whether it is or not, but that's not an unusual scenario. Okay. Well, it was another surprise, I guess, to a lot of us who hadn't seen that previously. But let's talk about sort of another controversial thing that has occurred this week. And as you remember, Tucker Carlson was a Fox News talk show host. He was fired after emails came to light wherein he discussed the president, Fox News's approach to its viewers in very unflattering terms that suggested that they were saying whatever they thought Fox News viewers wanted to hear. And it was otherwise disparaging of Fox News management. He went off, he started his own television network, query whether or not that was in violation of whatever written agreement he had with Fox. And and by the way, rumor afoot, he was actually for a period of time being discussed as a potential vice presidential candidate for Trump. He I mean, interviews- you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> You you literally can't make this stuff up. (laughs) He decides to interview Vladimir Putin, who would very much a former KGB officer, obviously Russian leader for life until, you know, he falls out of a hospital window, which happens apparently quite a bit in Moscow. Yes. And so I guess the question is, does this violate any laws? Could it violate any laws? One and two, let's place this in a little bit of historical context without drawing an exact moral equivalency to prior interviews that have been done by the press of highly controversial persons who were interested in the destruction of the United States. Well, I mean, look, does it violate the law? I mean, I'm hard pressed to think of what law it might violate. But if you have an idea of one, I'm happy to, to discuss and think about it and debate it with you. I guess, you know, you get uh, back to question, Farah, right? Did he did he do this for pay? Did he monetize this in any way? That Did Putin give him any advantage? Was he acting as a spokesperson to Putin? I mean, he didn't ask a lot of questions, but then Putin didn't give him a lot of room to ask questions. Well, look, I mean, I, whatever, whatever else you might think of Tucker Carlson, unlike, for example, the founder of WikiLeaks, he is actually a journalist, right? Tucker Carlson, he may not be, a, you may not like his journalism. You may think he's a biased journalist. Maybe he's a bad journalist. But he at least at one point was a serious journalist, right? Which is something that you can't say for the WikiLeaks founder. He's so serious. He had his cell phone on his hip during Dancing with the Stars. He wouldn't yeah, separate look, himself I mean, from his phone. But but look, the idea that Tucker Carlson violated Farah by interviewing Vladimir Putin, I think that's a that's probably a pretty significant stretch. I mean, look, there are a lot of reasons why Tucker Carlson was interviewing Vladimir Putin was a terrible idea and un-American and, and ridiculous. And, and no one should pay any attention to what was said. In fact, if you hear what Vladimir Putin actually said, it's embarrassing, uh, embarrassing that Tucker Carlson would allow himself to be utilized as a tool to have that information communicated to the American public. He should be embarrassed as a once serious journalist. But the idea that he had to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, I mean, we have lawyers running around all over D.C. not registering under FARB because they're giving legal advice for all sorts of 
shady people, put aside Vladimir Putin, the Chinese government, Chinese companies. We have a lot of problems in this country with Americans working for foreigners. I mean, working for foreigners. I don't think we need to go and, and worry about Tucker Carlson having to register under FARA and viol- having violated FARA by giving Vladimir Putin a platform. Now, all that being said, I think it's interesting to talk about what happened in the interview, right? So Tucker Carlson goes and interviews Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin starts out by sort of telling us the history of how Russia at some level is established as a nation state in 800 AD, whatever. Okay, that's ridiculous and, and, and <laughs> actually not accurate. But put that aside, right? The better part is the story that Vladimir Putin, in talking about Ukraine and analogizing his invasion of Ukraine to Hitler's invasion of Poland, he said, well, you know, it really was Poland's fault. If they had just been more accommodating and done what Hitler had asked and given him the territory he asked for, he wouldn't have invaded. And, and so in, in exactly one moment, you've got Vladimir Putin giving us the wrong history lesson about the Nazis and about Hitler. By the way, a history lesson that was a problem ultimately for the Soviets, who literally fought Hitler, but whatever, put that aside. And then analogizing that to himself, essentially making him the Hitler in this scenario, right, to Ukraine's Poland. And if anyone in the United States is paying attention, the reaction should be, oh, wait, we don't want to be on the Hitler side of the game. So why would we be on the Putin side? And yet all these MAGA conservatives are like, oh, my God, look at what Vladimir Putin's saying. He's right. We need to get out of Ukraine. It's, it's almost like everyone forgot what happened in World War II didn't, or weren't paying attention. And it makes literally no sense. I mean, Ronald Reagan is literally I, – I used to say he was spinning his rave. He's now like like spinning at the rate of like, I don't even know, like, Chinchilla. you know, a turbine Chinchilla. engine, right? Yeah. And, and a Tesla. Yeah. Whatever, whatever rate a Tesla spins, he is spinning very fast. It's great. It's a real problem. This is not the Republican Party of your putting aside even the politics of it. The idea that an American journalist would go to Russia after after the event Ukraine, go interview Vladimir Putin and create a platform without being embarrassed about it. In fact, trumpeting the fact that Vladimir Putin described the Poles as re- responsible for World War II is embarrassing for everybody involved. But let's also put it into perspective. Yeah, I take your point. There's really there's no FARA violation unless he's working on behalf of the government and not disclosing it or not registering. But that doesn't appear to be the case here, at least from what we can tell. But the second thing is the tendency of journalists to interview controversial figures is not new to Tucker Carlson. While this whole thing was a spectacle and an embarrassment, we've seen this show before. You know, there was a period of time shortly after the Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, had taken over in Iran. Rights for women were rolled back in earnest and in ways that were unprecedented. And he was given a platform right away by several journalists. So this is not new. Now, let's move on to something else, though. Alarmingly, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, has been hospitalized. He does report directly to the president, who is the commander in chief, and apparently did not advise the president during a hospitalization that he was in the hospital. But it appears he's back in the hospital now. I guess the question is, forgetting for a minute the question of disclosure to the president, obviously another issue. It's not um, enshrined in the Constitution, but you certainly wouldn't want to do that and not tell the president. What would happen if Secretary Austin or what should happen if Secretary Austin is physically unable to execute his duties and advise the president? Well, you know, what happened actually in, in the scenario we're talking about that just started taking place yesterday was that initially when Secretary Austin was taken to the hospital, um, they did publicly disclose it, learning the lesson of a few months ago, having not told the national security advisor, having not even told his own deputy secretary of defense that even though he transferred some of his authorities to her, that the reason why was because he was in the hospital, he'd been in the hospital before, had surgery, all that had been kept behind closed doors by the secretary himself and his close aides. This time, he's publicly disclosed it. The president apparently knew. 
But the initial take was I'm going, I'm being rushed to the hospital for emergency procedures, but I'm not incapacitated and therefore I am not giving up any of my responsibilities to the deputy secretary. Ultimately, though, once he got to the hospital and some evaluation was done, apparently a decision was made, as, as we can tell from the media reports, that he did, in fact, transfer some, if not all of his responsibilities to the deputy secretary of defense, Kath Hicks, and then continue to undergo the procedures. So what you have here is a couple of problems, right? One, the earlier problem of the complete failure to disclose at all. For what we understand, for about 10 days, nobody had any clue where the secretary of defense was other than his close aides. The president, the vice president, the national security advisor, and the deputy secretary of defense didn't know he was in the hospital. That's its own problem, right? Particularly as, as that is given during that period, we issued an ultimatum to the Houthis in the Red Sea. We conducted an attack in, in Iraq and Baghdad against a senior Iran militia-related leader. But then now this time, you have again the secretary of defense being rushed off to an emergency situation, once again, not immediately refusing to give up his responsibilities, and then ultimately sort of apparently under some amount of pressure or, or re revisiting the issue, then does decide to give up some of his responsibilities. So one has to ask himself, like, is the nation and is the president being best served by this secretary of defense? By all accounts, the president likes Lloyd Austin. By all accounts, he's a good mm -hmm. secretary of defense. This just doesn't seem like the right approach, though. And so I think there's probably going to be some pretty stiff conversations with the president. Surprised there haven't already been. And frankly, the fact that no one, not the secretary of defense, not his deputy, not his chief of staff, not the national security advisor, not the deputy national security advisor, nobody in the entire federal government has yet been held responsible for what happened two months ago is sort of shocking. I mean, it's sort of standard operating procedure. When something badly like this happens and it hits the newspapers, someone gets fired and nobody's been fired. And so I feel like, you know, um, like a lot of our adversaries, Iran, Russia, North Korea, China, people in the administration are learning a lesson too, which is we can do bad things to the United States. We can do bad things to the president, you know, not really do the right thing. And we don't really bear a cost, so why not do more of it? And so we saw a lot of that in the Trump administration. We're now seeing the Biden administration. And maybe this is just what happens when you have two octogenarians or near octogenarians in the White House who, I don't know, aren't really able to enforce discipline even amongst their own ranks. It's a real problem. Well, let's jump back for a minute. We've seen like sort of two instances of uncharacteristic unity in public lately. And one was the social media hearings in Congress that really talked about kids and sort of the impact on the young and developing brain of social media, which, as you know by now, if you've read Jonathan Haidt or any of sort of the legal and scholarly thinker social scientists, there's deep concern that the practice of scrolling and engaging on social media, if you're under the age of 16, interferes with the developing brain and could ultimately become a serious problem in that foreign governments can embed messages. People will feel less good about the United States overall. The idea of this being a country worth defending diminishes, et cetera. But we did see a unified front. Did you take any lessons about national security from these hearings, though? Well, yeah. I mean, look, I think that uh, there is no question in my mind that foreign nation states are using our social media networks, as they have our traditional media networks for many years, as a vehicle for conveying covert messaging to the American public, undermining the rule of law in this country, undermining our own political system, putting each of us and our political parties at each other's throats more so than they already are. They're not creating new disagreements, but they are exploiting existing ones, throwing fuel on the fire, essentially, and making our politics much more vicious. In a lot of ways, all the viciousness and vitriol you see currently in our political system, you can trace back in part, not completely, but in part to the 2016 Russian interference in our elections and the continuing interference that we've seen since then going forward by not just Russia, but China and Iran as well. Um, and I think you'll see that ramp up in the 24 elections. Again, 
you know, look, we are doing a lot of this to ourselves, but it is being magnified in a significant way by foreign influence. And social media in particular, I will note TikTok is part of that. And here's how you know. Just six months ago, you had an entire sort of run for about three, four days where there was this massive explosion of Americans on TikTok lauding the Bin Laden letter to America, the manifesto of Osama Bin Laden, the man who killed 3,000 Americans in one day in the course of a few hours with clashing three planes into buildings and one plane being taken down in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, the 9-11 attacks. That man's manifesto was being lauded by Americans on TikTok as being so insightful and so deep and shockingly amazing. And that was in part the TikTok algorithm, right? Spinning that and putting that in front of more eyeballs and more eyeballs and drawing more attention. That is a platform controlled by a nation state, at least in part, right? The Chinese government with its control and influence over ByteDance, which owns TikTok. The idea that that platform is allowed to continue to run and operate without any limitations here in the United States. And the idea that that, for example, the Metropolitan Washington Airport Authority allows TikTok to put ads up in the airports and Union Station allows TikTok to put ads up in its, in its facilities is ridiculous and embarrassing. People should be outraged and people should get their kids off of TikTok. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all this stuff, it's bad. Get your kids off TikTok first and then we can talk. So I guess the latest article on the brain science shows that it is altering the attention span overall and may have an impact not just on the developing brain, but on the aging brain. So, yeah. Do you see anything coming out of those hearings? Well, look, I mean, I think there's a lot belonging to talk about, about banning TikTok. And some states have tried to take action in this space. So we'll see what happens going forward. That's, I think, where you'll see the biggest impact. I, I doubt that you'll see a significant action against American major social media companies, although there is a Supreme Court case right now based on the Texas law, as well as other situations where the, where the government sought to influence those companies to take down information that the government didn't like. And so that case will wind its way through the court too, and we'll see what happens, both the First Amendment and the ability of states to control how these platforms operate in their states. Well, before we let you go, what do you think are going to be the big issues in the next two weeks, based on what you've seen? Man, if I could predict the, the issues for the next two weeks, I'd make a lot of money. You know, it's really hard to know. We, it, I'll say this, in the next month, we have the State of the Union coming up. We have at least one budget fight. We might have a vote on, on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. We have an ongoing debate and a potential fight over border security, Ukraine funding, and Israel funding. That's hot and, and rolling right now. And that's just the beginning, right? You have people, um, people are very spun up about the Chiefs having won the Super Bowl because at least some people seem to think that uh, there was memes online, by the way, of, of San Francisco, the 49ers being Team Jesus, and uh, the Kansas City Chiefs being Team Soros. I don't know what to make of all that, right? But I do think it's sort of amusing, you know, that sort of these modern conservatives are like, oh, yeah, San Francisco, right, is team Jesus, right? I think that a lot of people made fun of that on social media. Um, they obviously haven't seen uh, Union Square lately. Exactly. Say all that about the Super Bowl and relevant to the next two weeks of news is because you never know. Taylor Swift might come out and endorse. And if she does and it's not Donald Trump, which it is not going to be, you just wait to see the vitriol that comes out of that man and then it'll be on. And so, you know, I don't know. Taylor Swift against Donald Trump. I mean, I'm putting my bet on Tay-Tay. You know, I, uh, I'll i wager you dollars against donuts. She is very clever in terms of her business. She's going to endorse no one. That's how I see it going. But if she did, I think it would be, look what it did for the NFL. I mean, look, if you saw her documentary, the concert tour video, you'll Apparently see that she you really did, struggled right? with her endorse. I've heard, I've not watched myself, but I've heard the, the takeaway, the takeaway <laughs> bottom line of this, right, is, she really went through a very sort of gut-wrenching decision about whether to endorse a political candidate for the first time she did it, and then ultimately made the decision to do it. She felt compelled. 
And then she did ultimately endorse President Trump's opponent in the last election. So there is a precedent here, but you're right. Maybe she won't. Maybe she will. We'll all find out. And when those uh, Swifties vote, that's a big voting population, uh, a lot of below voting age people, but, uh, but you know, it's going to be interesting. Okay. I knew we could bring it right to the bottom and we have, I know you got to go, but we're glad to talk to you every single time. Come back again soon. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks for listening to National Security Law today. Be sure to share this podcast with a friend. You can share it on social media and make a point of discussing any issues that we brought up uh, in a way that allows you to hear other people's thoughts and opinions on these topics. Let's face it. Our unity is one of our greatest national security strengths. Be sure to hit that subscribe button on your listening app of choice. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteeb. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Our editor is Francis Burkham. My co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all of the members of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.